Hello everyone, welcome back to Sabbath School from Home. Very glad that you've decided to join us. My name's Cameron. And I'm Luke. And I'm Lachlan. And um, I am looking forward to this, but feeling particularly exhausted. I know it is literally just my job, but I was talking to students up the front as in giving presentations from 10 a.m. till 7 p.m. last night with only a one hour break in uh, roughly over lunchtime. And when I got home, I had uh, my throat was croaky and just everything was was going wrong. So I, I have recovered a bit today and um, I'm ready to do just a little bit more talking. And I hope that you're um, ready for riding along and listening to what we end up discussing. Yeah. Now, the title for this week's lesson is um, God's Call to Mission. Um, there's a sort of slight ambiguity in this. If I was to tell you... Uh, Lachlan, about my call to mission. Who is the one being called in that? Mm. I mean, if I talk to you about my call to mission, tell me about your call to mission. Uh, uh, we would use that in the phrase in the sense that we are the ones being called. Yeah. And um, as I'm looking through the lesson, it there seems to be this sort of ambiguity sort of carried through. So, you know, is God's call to mission, is that his call to us to embark on his mission? Or is it our call to him? Yeah. <laughs> is it, you know, God's call to mission? And what's fascinating is um, is that some of the passages that are being studied in this lesson refer to God's intention to um, reach us. So there's genera- uh, Genesis 3, um, 15, which is the one about the, hits, the heel crushing the serpent. Mm-hmm. That's very so much something in God's domain that God said he would do and that... Um, it was, if you like, part of the mission he was assigning himself. Uh, and then there's also passages where uh, it refers to, for instance, the call of Abraham. The call of Abraham, the story of Abraham, um, it seems to be a favourite with the lesson writers in recent um, quarters. So uh, there's sort of a couple of different directions we could go. It also talks about the comfort zone um, and the early church being called to move outside their comfort zone. Yeah, I, I think the direction of comfort zone is an interesting one. But um, as far as the you know Abraham as, as an example of God's call is, um, uh, how about we go in this direction? Abraham is a terrible example of God's call for the average modern Christian because Abraham is not the average modern Christian. He was an exceptional patriarch mm. um, who God spoke to in a way that God does not speak to normal people. And we shouldn't expect to have Abraham's experience because we're not Abraham. Um, Okay. I mean, in what ways was Abraham's call a non-typical? It was non-typical in uh, the specific instruction. Well, if if we take the story, um, if we take the reading of the story literally, God actually talked to him and said, go and do this. But the thing he told Abraham to do is definitely outside Abraham's comfort zone. And by analogy, we can say, well, God calls us to do uncomfortable things also. But in the very literal sense, what Abraham was called to do is a thing that not many of us... No, not, not, no modern Christian is called to be the father of nations. Yeah, well, that's true. Um, of course, <laughs> At least I haven't and, and been. Eve, <laughs> well, um, I suppose there's, there's somebody out there who might be hearing it. There's also... There's also, you know, in the background in all the Bible stories, there are background characters. So is it um, 
who is the is it Elijah or Elisha? I think it's Elijah complains to God and says, Oh, there's no one left in Israel who's mm. worshipping you. And God says, Yes, there are. Yeah, I think it's seven thousand. Mm. Yeah. There's there's people there who are still worshipping me. And those people God is more or less endorsing as living true. Mm. There are people there yes. who are true to my mission. And and yet they, they are not Elisha. No. So if we ask no. ourselves, uh, am I more like Elisha or am I more like one of those 7,000, you know, I, I think th- there's, a, there's a, a dangerous tendency to read the story of the biblical heroes and cast yeah. ourselves in the, in the role of the main character. Hmm. But the reality is, is, is that we're not the main character. Well, which main character, Luke? We hardly ever cast ourselves as the villain. You know, well, I've not, I've not heard many sort of Bible studies where the, it was assumed that when we read the story of Saul and David, we would naturally associate but, with Saul. But hang on a minute, Luke. What are you saying? I'm white, male, and English speaking. What do you mean I'm not the main character? Aren't the white English speaking males always the main characters? Yeah, no, you think you've just summed up what what's wrong with <laughs> modern, <laughs> modern Western <It> society? <laughs> I mean, this this sort of direction we're moving in. Um, the the question of what does God's mission actually look like for me um, is a much more important question than what does God's message look like in the abstract. And you're right, Luke. It's actually quite hard to pull out a to sort of a nice and neat formula for what God's call to mission looks like in the abstract because the calls to mission are so so tailored to the person and the circumstance. Well, actually, I have I have one. Hmm. I it's not mine. It's from the Bible. Hmm. It's a quote. Mm. Um, it's four verses from the Bible. And I think I'm cheating a little bit because I'm preparing a sermon for tomorrow that I'm preaching on sort of this topic. I've lucked out in that something I prepared much earlier for a different topic kind of relates to mission and going outside your comfort zone. Um, but maybe I shouldn't read it now. Maybe I should read it at the end. But I want to foreshadow it that I right. know a Bible verse that I think sums up what is a a not generic that's the wrong word a universal call to mission hmm. from god to oh, us right. well i've made my guess about what your selection is and i don't know if, if i'm fascinated lot, but I'm fascinated of, to hear well at the end of the episode let's compare notes all right sounds good it sounds good uh in terms of comfort zones the example is used um a story of babel is referred to uh there's a fleeting reference to Ecclesiastes. Uh, it seems to me that there'd be many other examples to draw from within Scripture about moving beyond our comfort zones than the Tower of Babel and the book of Ecclesiastes, uh, particularly in the context of mission. And to my mind, any discussion about comfort zones and mission, you would refer naturally to the book of Acts. And I think that later mm. on, uh, in a, on Wednesdays, when they refer to the early church, um, they get onto this theme. Uh, I mean, Acts is a sort of a systematic a dismantling of the comfort zones mm. of the early Christians. Uh, v- very much an intentional. Yeah, I mean, I would imagine the story of Peter seeing the vision of the unclean animals lowered down from heaven would, if I sat and pondered it for a little bit, that would probably percolate towards the top of the. The yeah. examples of explicit God's explicit call in the context of comfort zones and moving out thereof. Yeah. What is the comfort zone? Um, what is our zone of comfort? And and this is obviously a question that may have limited utility 
for our listeners, and I'm sorry, but, but uh, Lachlan, Luke, and I are similar age, from a similar culture, at a similar stage, stage of life, with a similar upbringing, um, to That's, the extent that... that we all went to the same same. Some listeners may so, not be aware how much of an understatement that is. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, so it could be that our comfort zones, our personal comfort zones, may not be very relatable. But sort of in general, when we talk about a Christian growing up in Australia, what what is the comfort zone? And um, the reason why I find this is a really difficult question to answer is we say, oh, God calls us to be countercultural. We're meant to be in the world, but not of the world. And so when we don't drink at work and when we don't have coffee and when we don't do these things, um, or when we, I don't know what it is, but you know, when we live counterculturally, we're living sort of outside our comfort zone. Um, personally, I grew up in an Adventist home. I spent most of after schools at an Adventist tertiary institution while dad was finishing his labs. I went to an Adventist school. I then attended the Adventist tertiary institution. I then taught at an Adventist school. And then I went and did some postgrad study at a secular university. And it was not until I was 26 um, or maybe later, 27, 28, that I had people with whom I was close enough friends to have their phone number in my phone and to call them regularly that were not Adventists. Uh, now, it's true that on the broad spectrum of things, I was countercultural compared with the typical Australian, but I was not, in fact, outside a comfort zone. Hmm. I think... Well, it's... It, sorry, you go. Well, I was, uh, I, I've been thinking about the even the way... That that communities like the Christian communities like the Adventist Church traditionally try and do evangelism, and I actually want to, over the over the course of this season, I want to try and tease apart the ideas of mission and evangelism. But I suspect that they are often conflated pretty closely together. Um, Adventist evangelism typically involves doing things within the Adventist comfort zone way. Sure, we might not hold the event in the church. We might even hold it in the church hall. Or, I've seen it done once, in a hall down at a golf club. But it sure as heck looks like a church service (laughs) in the sense that there are seats that might as well be pews and there's a person at the front that might as well be preaching. Um, There's songs, there's a a structure and there's liturgy and it's something that's culturally familiar. Look, last week Ken said, what happens if when we are going out to make disciples we are inadvertently trying to make them like us mm. instead of like God, like Jesus. Um, I'd like to take it one step further. And I don't think this was said during the discussion last week, but Ken and I reflected on it afterwards. What if it's not so much that we are trying to make people like us, but we are just trying to find the people who are already, broadly speaking, like us? Ooh, yeah. that is a um, can of worms, Cam. <laughs> I... So... so I, yeah, I, I, I once uh, heard someone observe to me that yeah. um, the Adventist uh, approach to evang- evangelism, um, yeah. coupled with the Adventist approach to church administration, is yeah. a self-selecting system that yes. ensures that the type of people who rise to all the decision-making positions are the same type of person. Mm. They are one of, one of the club um, because if you're not, you you won't you it, it self selects. Yeah. You won't even be interested. Yeah. Well, this is this is how this is the head uh, 
this is the wall against which I beat my head as a maths teacher because um, there are some very different ways that you can approach maths teaching. And there's the, the, the number of different ways that people experience mathematics as the discipline is wildly different. Now, I realise that this is probably possibly not a very relatable topic, uh, but I'll, I'll try and make this interesting. And just I'd like to speak directly to our dear and cherished listener at this point. If your first response is, oh, I wasn't any good at maths, I'd just like to point out that whenever someone admits themselves to be good at music or good at painting or good at gardening, they are not immediately surrounded by people saying, well, I'm not good at it. Mm-hmm. Um, but for some reason, if you happen to enjoy mathematics, you can hardly mention the fact without every person within earshot piping up and saying, oh, oh, I was never any good at maths. Um, and the thing becomes a little wearing on my nerves. So um, patience, please. I'll see if this analogy ends up being interesting. Um, of course, most people use maths... Um, in a different way to how you do, Locke, as a um, as a experimental physicist. Mm. There's just a lot of different spectrums of ways of understanding it. And there's lots of different ways of learning it. And it is possible to learn maths very procedurally, where you say, let's learn a process mm. and mm. practice the process. Do many, and do many examples it, that are almost the same so that we can master that Do many examples that are so, almost the so same. we can memorise yeah. The, yeah. the process. And then, and then from... An ability to follow that process as you use it more and more, it will gradually dawn on you that, what the significance of this is, of this resulting. In other words, start at the process, and the big picture idea will become apparent to you as you as you learn. Mm. And that is genuinely a way that a lot of people learn maths mm. and learn it really well. Um, so there are there are lots of people who will say to you as a maths teacher, I, I don't want to explain. Don't tell me exactly about what this means until I can at least do it a bit. Let, let me get sink my teeth into the process. And once I've learned the process a bit, I will then have enough sort of hooks in my brain that um, if you then try and explain to me what it means, I can follow what you're doing. But if you try and explain what it means up front, then it's too much for me. Um, and there's a second sort of um, way of learning maths, which is to start with the big picture, to say, well, what's the problem we're trying to solve? Mm. Um, where would this turn up in the real world? Um, have a discussion about what, why this problem what, what is it about this problem that makes it tricky? What is it about this problem that makes it non-trivial? Mm. Um, has it three guesses? How would you try and solve this problem? And then to sort of ferret your way through um, until you arrive, if you're a... Oh, I was going to say if you're a good teacher, that's um, unnecessarily value dividing. But it's possible to guide a discussion very carefully so that people discover a process mm. from the big picture. And an extreme example of this was a guy who was... Um, around the maths department in Newcastle, and if you went to him for, with any question, you say, oh, I'm having trouble with this paper. What's, what's that trying to get to in this brief? His response was always to say, oh, oh yeah, he said, that's a special case of the, uh, that's a special case of the Schlichting completion. And he'd, he'd immediately start explaining something to you at like three levels higher up <laughs> and then explain to you why this problem you were dealing with was a special instance of this big idea because in his mind that was just the obvious way to explain something is just Mm. jump straight to sort of what it means big picture had come down obviously obviously people who access one sort of if you're the sort of person who relies on a process driven maths if you have a teacher who insists on talking to you about the big picture it completely irritates you and if you're a student who really wants the big picture driven classroom 
being told to learn a process when you don't know why it matters drives you mm. around the bend. Mm. And I once did a survey of my mm. class and it was split almost 50-50 down the middle. And it wasn't split on the, on the lines of ability level. My point is maths teachers are drawn exclusively from the sorts of people for whom a process-driven mm. explanation of mathematics works. So people go to school and they sit in the maths classroom and sometimes what's taught to them works and sometimes it doesn't work. If it doesn't work, you're very unlikely to become a maths teacher. Mm. Mm. So it self-selects. So, so it self-selects. Yeah. And what you end up with is you actually end up with a culture within the profession where the people who insist on stuff being taught a certain way are not lying. It genuinely works for them. It does. It worked really well. And it and yet it can be incredibly alienating. And what you're describing, you've given a really good picture of it, is something that mm. I think is often called a survivor bias. So... Um, Let's let's give another analogy. I only give this um, not through my own direct experience, uh, but my wife worked as a graduated from theology and worked as a ministerial intern. Pastors and church administrators in the Adventist Church have a wide variety of um, opinions and perspectives on how the ministerial internship program works. But by and large, the people who are pastors and who are church administrators do have confidence that however it works, it does work. But of course it worked for them. That's why they are where they are. They are the pastor or the church administrator because the internship process after graduating from their degree basically worked. The people for whom it dramatically doesn't work don't stick don't don't, don't come out the other end as pastors. They they end up doing something Certainly else. Certainly not their administrators. Life. Certainly not administrators. That's what I mean by survivor bias. And um mm-hmm. the, it's it's a selection mechanism that you're describing and surely in the context of discussing comfort zones surely it should actually cause us huge reflection because Mm. if what you're saying is true then it means that we continually somewhat accidentally orchestrate our situation to be within our comfort zone Mm. individually but also organizationally institutionally yeah um just as an interesting side note cam those two different um uh, learning styles that you were yeah. referring to, I have heard elsewhere described as the um, well. It's it's quite similar in concept to um, the hedgehogs and the foxes, right? right? Um, so the idea is there: the hedgehog knows only one thing, but it knows it very well, hmm. right? Yeah. It, it specialises. The fox knows yeah. knows many things. Um, it, it sees the big picture. Uh, but it's yeah. not as good at, as the hedgehog at, at the one thing. Hmm. Um, yeah. And, you know, it's people who like to see the big picture and people who like to focus on the procedure yeah. kind of fit those yeah. two categories pretty well. Um, but well, it's, it it's an to... interesting... Pro- it, I mean, it's fascinating, your observation, that it wasn't about ability. It was about, it was about no. preference of approach or learning style. Yeah, it really was not about ability. And it makes me think that the insistence that schools have on streaming classes based on ability may may be possibly less than mm. advantageous. All right. Um, what if, well, what apl- if, so applying that... Sorry. <laughs> you go, Luke, and then I'll store my idea. I've got well, a good I think one. we might be about to say the same thing <laughs> or something similar. As you say, applying that idea that it's not about ability to your yeah. analogy, look about the pastors. What it suggests is the very real possibility that those who the system do, does not select mm. are not less good pastors than the ones whom the system does select. They're just different. 
Yeah. Well, exactly. I was going to the same thought, but I was going to apply it slightly differently. Could this could this suggest to us in the context of, um, you know, more traditional evangelism, that the reason there are lots of different denominations of Christian faith is because society self-organizes into groups of broadly similar or like-minded or similar approached people and that those are sometimes more or less overlapping sometimes not at all overlapping which is why you've got some denominations that absolutely vividly hate and dislike other denominations and then but but there are some where there is a fair amount of overlap and so then there's some sympathy between the denominations yeah well one of the i mean you only have to say look at what causes arguments within church and so uh, probably the appropriate decibel level. It's either the decibel level of the children in the church or the decibel level of the music in the church or the decibel level of the... For some reason, noise. And look, it's just the way we're wired. One of my um, friends, my brother-in-law, does some sound editing uh, for um, independent Christian ministry. And um, he said people will cope with grainy video. If there's a glitch in the video or it goes out of focus or it's fuzzy, they'll find... If, if there's a squeak in the background or a hum, they'll turn it off straight away. <laughs> so there's something about sound which just totally triggers us. And then you say, all right, well, all we need to do, all we need to do is find a um, the right decibel level. Okay, anyone who's stood up in front of a group of more than five people and tried to organise an activity for them will know that there's going to be someone in that group for whom physical silence, so for whom silence is physical pain. Yeah. <laughs> And there's going to be someone in the group for whom noise is physical pain. <laughs> I, I, so, <laughs> I really don't want to derail the point of this. Um, <laughs> but since we've mentioned it, I would yeah. personally maintain that any volume which exceeds the level known to cause industrial deafness yeah. uh, should be avoided. <laughs> <laughs> at, at least right. in sustained noise, <laughs> i.e., music. All right, and I'm not. Um, I'm not saying anything, but but some. But a lot of people I have are attended already many deaf, worship though. services at a church we all know, where I have yeah. used a decibel meter because yeah. I am very, very pedantic, <laughs> and I have determined yeah. that it does exceed the level at which industrial deafness is called being caused for sustained oh. periods of time during certain parts I'm, of the service. All right, that's the end I'm of I'm going to hazard a guess, Luke, that you belong to that group of people that enjoys silence. <laughs> I was wondering when we were going to get to the to the self-identifications. Well, <laughs> I my family has a Quaker heritage uh-huh. and their whole idea of a worship service where everyone sits in a circle quietly uh, saying nothing until somebody yeah. feels the need to speak for a few minutes or less yeah. and then goes yeah. back to being silent again. <laughs> Sounds really good. To I can me. hear the longing in yeah. your tone of voice, Luke. <laughs> I really okay. want to this, try it. This aptly um, illustrates the point that I think we're all moving towards, which is that there are different ways of doing things that speak very loudly to different sorts of people or very quietly perhaps or resonate perhaps. Um, or with different uh, people, and that as well as having a set of beliefs, we have a culture. Hmm. And if that culture, um, all cultures tend to self-perpetuate. It's one of the features of culture. Culture is the thing that connects us with the past. Hmm. 
in the present and the future. It is, it is the traditions and the things that ensure. Culture is the thing that means our grandchildren are going to resemble us in hmm. some ways. Um, so um, churches have a culture. And when you say, when you draw the lines too narrowly about what is right in terms of, for instance, strategies for evangelism, you may very well succeed in bringing people into the church, but you'll bring only in a certain sort of person. And the thought occurs to me this, that um, before someone is welcomed into the Adventist church, they have to first um, turn up. By and large, we expect people to come to us. Mm. Um, we, we hold events. Our mission is expressed in events and sometimes those events are pathfinder events and i have very fond memories of a lot of the events i've been at sometimes it's revelation seminars and there's a year of my life where i endured a um 12-week revelation seminar at college church which actually wasn't that bad but then i moved to a new job and arrived at my new church and they were just embarking on a 12-week revelation seminar and i had six months of revelation seminar and i've i've almost never recovered um that was about six years ago. And the facetious thought enters my mind that I can't wait to get to heaven because at least we won't have to have revelation seminars anymore. <laughs> um, but that, of course, betrays the fact that I'm culturally slightly out of step with the church that I belong to because for a lot of people, they find it genuinely nourishing to to ground their mm. Christian experience in, in these things. And I, I don't find that it nourishes me in the same way. So... Um, well, but the, the actually, net result is sorry, you finished. There's a really important observation yeah. to grow that grows out of that. Yeah, uh, my point was just that we have this culture, and if someone's going to become an Adventist, they have to turn up. Mm. Um, That's a fascinating uh, thing to ponder. We, we, we then give them a series of Bible studies, and that series of Bible studies is focused on doctrines, but you are learning also the culture. And you're learning that you'll be turning up to church services and you'll be seeing if you feel like you fit in. Mm. There's going to be a lot of parts of that decision-making that is not, in fact, based on the doctrine. And if you have passed all these hurdles, then you are welcome to join the, the Adventist church. Um, what that seems to me is that one reason a lot of people don't join our church is because we don't actually want them. Mm. They're just... Just a little bit too different. Too different. And, mm. Yeah. There's a flip side to it. This is this is the important point. What if, like you were describing, you know, twenty minutes earlier, Cam, what if you've grown up and this is your culture? But like you just admitted, there's parts of it that you don't resonate with. And this doesn't have to be describing an Adventist community or even a Christian community. Frankly, you could be mm. describing the Australian culture. Right, you you are born mm. Australian, you grow up Australian, you identify as Australian, you cheer for Australian sports. So many of these things are true, and then you discover that there's parts of Australianness that you don't resonate quite so closely with, and that it could be all manner of different ones. But but politically, these show up, right? It's it's well, Australia mm. as a culture, modern modern Australia as a culture, is built on the exporting of fossil fuels, and you say, yeah, but I'm actually. I've got some concerns about fossil fuels. I'm not. I'm not as willing mm. to be absolutely on board with them as as my culture is. And so then you say, "Well, that you know, that's easy. Just stop being Australian." But that's not easy at all because the all of you, your your culture, your identity is. I'm I'm trying to give a non 
religious example first, just to highlight how generically true this is. But I remember being um, startled, almost confronted uh, some years ago, thinking through discussing uh, homosexuality within the Adventist community uh, with some people. And the, the point was made by someone who was gay and they said, well, I don't, I can't, I don't really fit within the Adventist community, but I can't really be anything else. In other words, what they were saying is I am culturally Adventist. I don't feel at home anywhere else. There are other cultures, but that's way outside my comfort zone. And yet I'm not properly at home within my own culture because I cannot really be within my own comfort zone, or perhaps I make other people feel outside their comfort zone, even within my own community, my own. And, and I thought that's a really interesting thought. Um, mm-hmm. it's, it's, an, it's an interesting aspect of this idea of, of comfort zones. Um, I, I honestly think one of the things that we could all be doing in all of these contexts is to be trying to make sure that we maintain and preserve and defend a little bit of breadth so that the culture of, uh, resists the tendency to become just a, a absolutely uniform, homogenous monoculture. I think that the, the, the richness of human community comes partly because of an allowance for the variation, um, identifying the richness there. Um, mm. And that that could be... Uh, to, well, I mean, I'm, I'm betraying... My, my emphasis, way back in the, in the first episode of this season, I mentioned that the idea of mission, God's mission, actually captivates me quite a bit. Um, I resonate with it a lot. I think this is part of God's mission, um, is, is the formation of communities with resilience and vibrant diversity, uh, able to coexist. Mm. Can I jump in with an example before Luke gives the same example? Um, uh, J.R. Tolkien's Leaf by Niggle, which is a story that turns up in this podcast quite often, and you can find it online and you can read it in 40 minutes. And you should go and pause this podcast and go and read it because it's very good. But um, uh, Niggle is a painter. He hates gardening. Uh, He's drawing this painting of a tree. It's his life work. And his neighbour, Parrish, is a gardener. It doesn't see any value at all in painting. Mm. And um, Parrish doesn't criticise Niggle's painting, which he thinks is very charitable. But he, he does point out how messy Niggle's garden is because <laughs> that's a neighbourly duty. And, and Niggle, um, you know, doesn't see any value in gardening at all and is irritated that his neighbour doesn't see any value in the picture. And so what you find is that these two people are just belong to different paradigms. Until they go on the great journey, which is the symbol of death. And poor old Niggle never gets his picture finished. And um, they go through a process, each of them separately, of um, discovery and learning to manage their own time. And, to, you know, it's fascinating. They, I love they that learn idea that, from each other. Well, this is, yes. And they then learn when to Niggle, value each other. Yeah. When Niggle gets to heaven... It, the the his picture his his part of heaven allocated to him is the picture he was trying to paint, but it's in real life. Mm. He's not painting the garden anymore. He's not painting a tree. He's actually tending a real tree. Mm. And, and, and it's it turns the tree out he, he needs somebody good at gardening to help him make it. Yes, real. Hmm. Yeah, and and when Parish turns up and sees it as sees 
Niggle's vision actualized as an actual tree. He, he catches the vision hmm. and it totally enthralls him and he spends hours wandering around just looking and admiring at it. And um, someone says to him, you know, you, you could have seen this earlier. And Parrish says, yes, but it wasn't like this one. It was a picture. Um, and they say to him, yes, but y- y- it was only a glimpse, but you could have caught the glimpse. Mm. Um, and each of them suddenly finds that, you know, Niggle needs Parrish to actually help him produce this garden and Parrish needs Niggle for the sense of artistry and whatever else and together they make what turns out to be a a highly cherished and valued corner of heaven. Mm. If I remember correctly the story ends with their garden becoming a place where other souls will come to be nourished and and grown. And healed, yes. And healed. Yeah. Um, You know, that's that's a great idea for a podcast episode when when we're finding it difficult to schedule ourselves is one of us can just read Leaf by Niggle Hmm. as oh, an episode it's probably it's probably in the public domain is it? i think it is in the public domain well i've got um, a copy on the shelf i'll um that's a very good idea so um so this is the point about comfort zones i think this is what, what i feel i think that there are ways that people sometimes get called by god and captivated by parts of god's mission that require them to do things quite outside the normal expectations of of culture you know travel to a foreign land where a different language is spoken and totally different traditions and social norms exist but there are also Mm. times and places and people for whom god's god's call to a mission the the invitation to partner with god in his mission to save the world involve being agents of that kingdom within their own community and and to the extent that all of any participation in God's mission does involve agitating for change, um, all of these all of these participants are to some extent moving outside their comfort zone. But the 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 magnitudes of those of those distances from comfort are vastly different from person to person. And I do think that it is possible to be diligently faithfully actively participating in god's mission to save the world while still basically um existing in the zone that is more or less fairly comfortable to you yeah it's not a copper like it's not was a copper it the, mm. was it anna the prophetess who lived in the temple court yeah fair good example the old lady that yeah that that jesus parents took jesus to when he was mm. a young infant mm. she lived she just lived there being a prophetess in the in the courtyard of the temple. Yeah, yep. So, I don't know if it helps that much, but um, I just I think it's really important to make sure that it's sometimes said like this: following God's mission means stepping outside your comfort zone. I am outside my comfort zone, therefore I am participating in God's mission. That's a logical fallacy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, the time has come for us to conclude with some Bible verses. Yeah. Um, Indeed. But first, um, I want to hear your guesses as to what you think I'm going to bring up now. Um, I was going to turn to Micah 6 8 um, because mm. it is a picture um, of, and it, this is an instruction to the people of Israel generally. And of course, you know, one twelfth of the Israelites were Levites and they were, they were priests, but 11 twelfths of them weren't. So. Mm. Um, there are a lot of people there living ordinary lives. 
Um, and uh, he's told you, O oh man, what's good and what does the Lord require of you, uh, but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. And it seems to me that that is sometimes in and sometimes outside our comfort zone. Mm. Well, I mean, um, doing justice, when you think about it in the practical sense, is, um, I would say, very often outside our comfort zone. Um, but that is a very good guess, and but it's not... Uh, the verse that I have found, ah. I found a verse I like more than Micah six eight. Well, let me oh. let me guess, but the guess is really more a bit of a mirror. It's reflecting perhaps one of the ones that I like a lot, um, and it's hard to point where it comes from. I typically read it in Luke chapter four, but in Luke chapter four, Jesus is citing from is reading from Isaiah. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, for He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim that captives will be released, the blind will see, the oppressed will be set free, and that the time mm. of the Lord's favor has come. That's very much a kind of a, a statement of mission. And what's really, mm. really cool about that is that it's Jesus at the start of his earthly ministry, according to the Gospel of Luke, at least, self-proclaiming. He, he, is, he is clearly labeling. It's the abstract of the paper that is yet to be written. <laughs> it's... Mm. It, and so any question, anytime people sit around and good Protestants love to do this, sit around and, you know, why did, you know, why did Jesus have to come? Why did Jesus have to die? Well, he, he says pretty he said clearly it. what his mission was. <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Um, well, you, you're also very close because um, it, it is Isaiah. It's not, yeah. it's not the bit of Isaiah that Jesus is quoting there, although it is a bit quite similar. Um, so you're both very close. I, I suspect you may not know this one. Um, this I, I found this when I was researching notes for a sermon on um, helping the poor and oppressed. And I don't know if I would have stumbled across it otherwise. Um, Isaiah 58 is what it is. And the entirety of Isaiah 58 is brilliant. Um, but 6 to 10 is the part that I'm thinking of when I think of mission. And Isaiah 58, 6 to 10 says this, Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourself in behalf of the hungry, and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness, and your night will become like the noonday. Yeah, it's good. Mm. Um, it also highlights, I think, and this is something that I'm sure we'll talk more about. I like the term mission more than um, there's something about being a missionary, for instance, that's not quite the same as being an evangelist. Mm. Um, and uh, you know, our mission is so much more than just the impartation of information. Um, it is, you know, an, an all-encompassing mission. And um, I guess really um, the challenge, as I read that, Luke, is that. God wants us to be the sort of person for whom that type of behavior is what characterizes our comfort zone. Hmm. Yeah, the the most uncomfortable 
aspect of comfort zones is trying to reprogram it to be a new zone. Yeah. So, um, and I think when Christ said, my burden is easy and my, or my yoke is easy and my burden is light, um, it's only easy and light for the people that come to him. Mm. Come to me, all you who are weary. So there's there's a sense in which what is God is calling us is to have our comfort zone reprogrammed. Um, and that's, that's I guess, our hope and prayer for ourselves. And um, we might leave it at that point because I'm eyeing the clock. Uh, if you have any thoughts that you want to throw into this discussion, you can email us at sabbathschoolfromhome at gmail.com. And um, otherwise, please join us again next week and uh, looking forward to more discussion on mission.